Well, good morning and welcome to this uh, Easter Sunday service, one of the pinnacles, of course, in the Christian calendar. Um, but today I want to deal with a topic that um, I think uh, a lot of unchurched people have in their minds around this time of year when they realise that there are those who do church and believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For many of them, they're not sure that this is anything more than a fable. And so today I want to deal with that topic, this question. Is Jesus' resurrection a fable? Is Jesus' resurrection a fable? You know, I, I used to be an agnostic, so I'm very sympathetic to people who think the Bible is nothing more than a book of fables loosely based in history because that is what I used to think. I can remember when I was at uh, year six primary school. That was the only year, actually, that we had RE teachers because it was, it was a state school. And um, I can still remember... One, one period a week, we'd have that lesson, a couple of different teachers, and uh, one term we did a little booklet we are working our way through, and the topic on one particular week was the Bible. And so we had some discussion about that. And as part of the activities, which some we did by ourselves, some we did in, in the group as a class as a whole, and I remember there were four ways you could evaluate the Bible. What do you think the Bible is? One, do you think it's God's word? Two, do you think it's helpful teachings for morals and life? Three, is there some useful historic information in the book or is it just utterly boring? Now, you could tick any one of those four boxes. And we had a very nice RE teacher and so most of the class wanted to please her and they had ticked the first or second box. And they were having some discussion about that. And I then remember she said, did anyone tick box three or four? And uh, myself and my mate put up our hands and about one or two others in the entire class. And um, I had ticked, there's some useful historic information in the Bible. I didn't believe it was God's word. And my mate had ticked, it's utterly boring. And, uh, you know, and so we, were, we sat there. And uh, so for me as uh, a kid growing up primary school, high school, I didn't believe in the Bible, didn't believe it was God's word. I just thought it was a book largely of fables, loosely based in history. And so I'm sympathetic to anyone listening to this message online who sits at that place. But, you know, looking at this concept of Jesus rising from the dead, um, before I even look at that, I guess we've got to deal first with the idea is God real? Is there a creator behind this universe? Or has it happened by random chance? Well, today I want, I want to have a look at what some atheists and agnostics say about this universe. Let me, these are, these are all experts in their field. First of all, Freeman Dyson, physicist and mathematician, he says this, he's also an atheist. It almost seems as if the universe must, in some sense, have known that we were coming. Sounds very poetic for a physicist, doesn't it? It almost seems as if the universe must, in some sense, have known we were coming. What on earth did he mean by that? Well, he's saying that the universe is so finely tuned, so carefully ordered to support life on this planet, for instance, that it's extremely... Extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary, as if it knew we were coming. Here's another example. Paul Davies, he's a physicist, was professor at Arizona State University. 
He says this, Through my scientific work, I have come to believe more and more strongly that the physical universe is put together with an ingenuity so astonishing that I cannot accept it as a brute fact. I cannot believe that our existence in this universe is a mere quirk of fate, an accident in history. This guy's an agnostic. He's not a believer in God, but he looks at the universe as he puts it there, ingenuity. He even uses the phrase put together. The universe is put together with such ingenuity. I can't believe it happened by chance, he's saying. I've listened to a little bit of uh, Sean McDowell recently. He's an apologetics lecturer. And uh, he quotes this chap, Mark Corton, as saying this. If the balance between gravity and the expansion rate were altered by one part in one million, billion, 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 there would be no galaxies, stars, planets, or life. So according to physicists, actually, if there's just a slight alteration in how this universe is balanced, let alone life, there wouldn't be galaxies or planets. You know, I was um, having a chat with my vet one day. I've got a little fluffy dog called Pom Pom. And uh, I love taking him for a walk, get that manly attitude going on there with my hot pink lead and my little fluffy dog. <laughs> Mind you, Pom Pom thinks of himself as a lion. He really does. He takes on big dogs and has a go at them. Anyway. <laughs> having a chat with my vet about the universe. He's quite an academic man, and uh, as we start to talk, talk about its origins and its structure and its order, I said to him, you know, it seems incredibly illogical to think that this structured, ordered, precise universe came about by chance. Surely there must be an intelligence behind its design. And he said this to me. He's an agnostic. He said, um, you know, perhaps a couple of decades ago, I would, have, I would have disagreed with you. But the more evidence there is in this scientific world, the more that is discovered about this universe, I've got to agree. There does seem to be an intelligence behind its design. Could it be that God has endeavoured to reveal his presence through the order and design of this universe? And I tell you what, there are some scriptures that would indicate that perhaps he, he has. Have a look at the, what the psalmist says here in 19, verse 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. You notice that last phrase? The universe, night after night, it reveals knowledge. There are physicists that are examining that knowledge and the greater their abilities to dig into the structure and balance of the universe, the more they are overwhelmed with the knowledge they discover and the evidence that some genius has designed it. There are over 30 physical and cosmological parameters that must be finely tuned in order for life to be possible. Let me give you a few of them. The force of gravity. Should be on the next slide, guys. Next slide. The force of gravity, expansion rate of the universe, velocity of light, mass density of the universe, electromagnetic force, 
ratio of electron and proton mass, entropy level of the universe, fine structure constant, cosmological constant, strong nuclear force, weak nuclear force, initial uniformity of radiation, and so on. Whole list of things. If these are not finely tuned in perfect balance, life could not exist in this universe. Let me quote Sir Roger Penrose, another atheist. He says this. He's a physicist and professor of mathematics, Oxford University, two years ago. He was awarded the Nobel Prize in physics. He says, if we combine all the laws that must be finely tuned, we couldn't even write down that number in full since it would require more zeros than the number of elementary particles in the universe. You understand what he's saying? The chance to have all the parameters fall into place to happen by just some random coincidence, that number, that, that number would be so big you couldn't even write it down. This gives evidence that there must be an intelligence behind the design of the universe. That's what we're seeing time and time again. And of course, for those who believe the scriptures are valid, it's no surprise. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this word heavens, it's uh, from the Hebrew word shamayim, shamayim, and uh, the Bible commentator Henry Morris defines it like this. The essential meaning of the word corresponds to our modern term space, such as when we speak of the universe as a universe of space and time. So when you read that God created the heavens, what's it saying? God created the universe. But I know some people think there is a conflict between science and the Bible. I'm sure you've heard that said before. You can't marry those two things, science and the Bible. You can't mix those two together. Well, let me quote here from Dr. John Lennox. He's Professor of Mathematics and Philosopher of Science at Oxford University currently. Now, he, unlike some of the others I've quoted, is a believer in Jesus. He says this. We study God's revelation both in the natural world, that's this universe and this planet. We study God's revelation both in the natural world and the scripture with the minds God has given us. And I believe there is no conflict between those two sciences properly understood. In other words, he says, you can have an academic approach to understanding something of God's revelation as you study this universe and planet. Likewise, you can have an academic approach to studying the scriptures and learning what God reveals through them. There is no conflict between those two disciplines, no conflict between science and the Bible, he's saying. If you want to dig into this uh, sort of information a little bit more, great book here. Sean McDowell, he's an apologist. He writes a book titled, Is God Just a Human Invention? You might like to take a picture of that on your phone. If you want to dig deeper, take a quick pick of this. This is a great book to dig into these sort of topics. So I'm saying, you know, there's no conflict between the Bible and science, but the information recorded about Jesus in the Bible, is that reliable? Is it reliable? Well, if it was reliable about, say, for instance, Jesus' resurrection, surely ancient literature outside of the Bible would mention it because it seems like a pretty big thing. Well, let's have a look. First of all, 
Josephus. He's a first century writer, certainly not given to old fancy. He's a bit of, bit of a tough nut, born in uh, AD 37. AD 66, he was the commander of the Jewish forces in Galilee. Um, he writes a history of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. Included in that history is some information about Jesus. I'll quote it to you. Now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, a doer of wonderful works, a teacher. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate had condemned him to the cross, those who loved him at first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again on the third day. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct to this day. So here you've got, there's no evidence. I haven't read anyone who said this guy's a believer in Jesus. He's simply recording history. And part of his historic recording even includes the resurrection of Jesus. Let me quote another first century writer. His name's Clement. He became one of the early church fathers. He's actually ordained by the apostle Peter and ultimately became the bishop of Rome. But he writes nothing in the Bible. This is one of the statements he makes about the apostles. He states in a document referring to the apostles that they had complete certainty caused by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Complete certainty caused by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Very early writer, first century. Now, why, why does he say what he's saying? We, he knew what it was to see the person who discipled him, the apostle Peter, executed because he would not deny him faith, his faith. So there in the huge arena in Rome, Peter would not deny his faith and it was decided they would crucify him Therefore, Peter said, I'm not worthy to die the way my master did. So they crucified him upside down. Clement would have watched that. What's he saying here? He's saying they had this incredible certainty about their faith in Jesus. Why? Because they saw him rise from the dead. One more, Polycarp. Polycarp was the Apostle John's disciple. He was appointed as Bishop of Smyrna. I've listened to his uh, uh, book to the Philippians, fantastic book. Um, he mentions the resurrection in that book five times, very early writer, early second century. Let me quote one of those. For they did not, he's referring to the apostles, for they did not love the present age, but him who died for our benefit and for our sake, raised from the dead. So there's ancient literature outside of the Bible from believers and non-believers who were convinced Jesus rose from the dead. And we have these ancient documents. Now, what about the accuracy and authenticity of the New Testament? These ancient biographies about Jesus, for instance, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and the book of Acts. Well, there is a way of ascertaining whether or not they're accurate. It's called textual criticism and it's applied to any ancient document. The bottom line about textual criticism is you look at how many documents you have Obviously, the more you have, and if they seem to match each other what they're saying, then that makes it reliable. And secondly, if you've got them written pretty close to the dates of the events. 
That's how they work out textual criticism. Alistair McGrath, Professor of Science and Religion, Oxford University, he says this, we can be confident of the accuracy, authenticity and integrity of the New Testament scriptures that have been passed down to us today. What's he saying? Well, when that science, I've listened to a short lecture of his, when that science is applied to the biographies about Jesus, as we have in the Bible, it reveals they're accurate. Let me give you the stats here. The New Testament was written between 40 and 100 AD, various authors. There are over 25,000 ancient manuscripts aged from 130 to 350 AD. 25,000 of them that we have over that. Huge number. Nothing else compares to this. So we, we, we know a lot about the Roman Empire, don't we? We see it in movies and all this information and stuff. In comparison to what we know about the people, the great leaders of Rome at that time, we have at best a few hundred documents and they're not written, you know, um, here it says 130, 350 years after. Most of them are written about 1,000 years after the events. We have far less and there's a far bigger time gap. They're not questioned at all at universities. They're considered... They fit the reliability within reason and therefore when textual criticism is applied, they're acceptable. Well, in comparison to the life of Jesus, we have far, far more evidence and it causes people like Alastair McGrath, Professor of Science and Religion, Oxford University, to say this. The remarkable thing about the Bible is that there is such a short chronological distance between the events being described and the first manuscripts. At its simplest, they're reliable. Very reliable. Well, knowing the New Testament's reliable, let's see what it records about the resurrection. First of all, Luke 24:36. Luke interviewed extensively eyewitnesses about the risen Jesus. This is what he records. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them. Jesus has just died. The disciples are grieving. They're upset. And then suddenly Jesus stands among them. He said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. They see the, the nail scars in each of them. It is I myself. Touch me and see. He invites them to grab him, hold him. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they were, uh, And while they still did not believe because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. He's just trying to be as normal as possible. Let's sit down and eat something together. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. And it seems he, it seems he talked to them at length. Moving on to the next slide. He opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. 
And this is exactly what the disciples did. They were witnesses of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. And they told the Mediterranean world about it. But it's been argued, could it be that the disciples were so deeply grieved, so upset about the loss of their teacher, the one they considered the Messiah, so upset about it, so grieved, that they so desperately wanted to see him, they imagined they saw him. That it was just an hallucination. That's been argued. And it certainly happens, people do hallucinate. But there's a problem with the conclusion. Let me quote to you from Gary A. Sibsey, licensed clinical psychologist. He says this, I have surveyed professional literature, peer-reviewed journal articles and books written by psychologists, psychiatrists and other relevant healthcare professionals during the past two decades and have yet to find a single documented case of group hallucination of group hallucination. You'll notice the account I just read. It's not a person. as a whole bunch of disciples, all different sorts of walks of life, and yet they're seeing the same thing. This psychiatrist, and I've quoted, there's another one I could quote as well, said that just doesn't happen. There's no evidence that ever happens. Yes, people hallucinate, but they do not see the same stuff. Before I quoted Luke, who uh, interviewed a bunch of of eyewitnesses about the resurrected Jesus, now let me quote John. John is an eyewitness. John 21, verse verse, and onwards. After Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, it happened this way. Now once again, you'll notice he lists a whole bunch of people. He names them. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. I feel for him. I hate fishing all night and catching nothing. Absolutely hate it. I feel very discouraged. <laughs> Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. So he's at a distance standing on the shore. They're out in the boat. The disciples didn't realise it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, have you caught any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net out on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because because of the large number of fish. Moving to the next slide. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord! As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 metres. When they landed, they saw a fire burnt with, uh, of burning coals, and there were fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to him, Bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. And you notice the details that John includes. 
It was full of fish, 153. I get that. You get a big catch, you like to record it. (laughs) But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Again, he wants to eat with them, showing how real he is. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This now was the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. You notice the way John records. Specific names of who was there, even the number of fish. Specific details. They hung out clearly for some time. Jesus eats with them. It's all very normal, not some sort of ghost, but the true risen Jesus in bodily form. Now, people will argue this, and this is the title of this message. You know, is the resurrection of Jesus a fable? Could it be that um, the stories just got embellished over the years and became legend? Let me quote to you from uh, Sherwin White. He's a historian, particularly studying ancient history fellow at St. John's College University, Oxford, and uh, President uh, for the Society of Promotion of Roman Studies, Ancient Roman Studies. This was his conclusion. He studied the rate at which legends develop in the ancient world and concluded that it takes two generations at least. Two generations, what's that? I don't know, 150 years, two ages of 75, 150 years, something like that. It's not John's great-grandson who's writing about this. It's John! There's no time gap. John's writing about the actual events that he experienced. There's no chance for legend. Luke is interviewing the people who experienced all this. We have the documents. It's not a legend. We have the writings of the time. In summary, the evidence is overwhelming that the resurrection of Jesus is not a fable. Rather, the resurrection of Jesus is a fact. The resurrection of Jesus is a fact. It's one of the best attested facts in ancient history. But would this convince, I don't know, a hard-nosed academic like Lee? Not Lee Cole, but Lee Strobel. So here's Lee Strobel. He, he wrote for... Uh, the Chicago Tribune, and a classic picture there, like you would appear in a newspaper of the time in the 70s and 80s. And there he is with his wife, Leslie, in the early 70s. You can tell by the television set. There it is, a classic 70s television set. Anyone remember those? I do. (laughs) Well, he studied uh, law at uh, Yale University and also journalism. And got a job at the Chicago Tribune, later on at the Daily Herald, where he was actually managing, uh, assistant managing editor there. But at the Daily Tribune, he was doing great in his career. He'd, he'd uh, done some fantastic journalism. He'd won a major award uh, for one of the, one of the uh, significant cases that he was a part of. Uh, as an investigative journalist, of course, they... they you know, they tend to be people that pride themselves on getting to the truth, the accuracy. In fact, they had a slogan up in their office that said, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. 
Just don't take that at face value. <laughs> well, Lee's life was doing well. He loved his wife, had a little girl, and um, in the journey of all this, something awful happened. His wife got to know a Christian lady and she started talking about Jesus with her. Now, he was an atheist. His wife was an agnostic. And his wife got invited to church a few times. It's actually um, Willow Creek Community Church where Bill Hybels was the pastor. They went a few times and, oh, my goodness, Leslie became a Christian. Lee was furious. He could not believe how she got brainwashed into this thing. His classic phrase he used to say is, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up for marrying some religious nutter. You weren't a nutter when I married you. He thought about divorce. But in the end, he thought, you know what? With the skills I've got in investigative journalism, I'm just going to research this, you know, this Jesus she's into, and I'm going to prove to her from, from historic research, this is a fable. She's fallen for a fable. So he did. He got into it, got back to the ancient manuscripts. He studied, he studied, he researched, he researched. And after almost two years, in his, he's in his late 20s by this time, a couple of years of this, he was overwhelmed at the evidence that the biblical Jesus is the real Jesus of history. Be it his life, be it his teachings, be it the miracles, be it the death of Jesus, even the resurrection, the evidence was overwhelming. He couldn't believe it. He was shocked. And he got to the point where he had to admit it's true. And he thought of the implications of that because he knew that Jesus claimed to be the divine son of God. And he found himself one night owning up to what he considered his arrogance towards Christianity, towards Jesus, towards the whole thing, the church, owning up to the, the, a lot of anger in his marriage and the way he'd been treating his wife, confessing his failings. And in the journey of all of that, he admitted Jesus I realize you really are the divine son of God. Would you forgive me? Would you be willing to be part of my life, even my life? And from that point, his life certainly turned around. And they still happily married with Leslie to this day. And um, he was so overwhelmed with the reality of all this. He kept on with journalism for a while but ultimately, in 87, he quit and decided he would devote his life full-time to just helping sceptics like himself realise that actually the evidence is overwhelming that this Jesus is the real Jesus of history and not some fable that's written about in the Bible. There he is lecturing today. That's what he looks like these days. Actually, there's a great movie about his life, 2017. They released a fantastic movie about his life. I've watched it two or three times, really worth a watch. It's simply called The Case for Christ, which is also the title of one of his most read books. Let's put up this final slide. The evidence is overwhelming that the resurrection of Jesus is not a fable, 
Rather, the resurrection of Jesus is a fact. And even for a hard-nosed lawyer-journalist type who is willing to dig in and do proper research, not just read a few articles on a, on a, you know, a, on a website, but do proper research, also came to that conclusion. As the worship team returns, I want to have a moment of prayer because, look, you might be here today and you're thinking to yourself, that, that evidence is persuasive. You know, I don't do a lot of church. I'm willing to lead you in a prayer where you can, a little bit like Lee Strobel, where he invited Jesus into his world. Or it could be here this morning, you do do church, but even though you do church, you're not sure if you've had that experience. You believe the right stuff, but is Jesus a part of your world? There's a guy called Nicodemus in the Bible that Jesus met with, and he had all the knowledge in the world, believed the right stuff. But Jesus said to him, Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And indicated that Nicodemus was not born again. He even quoted those famous words to Nicodemus. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Speaking of himself, Jesus was. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. He explains everlasting life like this when he was praying. Eternal life means this, knowing you, the only true God, Jesus says in prayer. Same book of the Bible, recorded by John. Do you know Jesus in that personal sense? So whether this is some of the information I've shared today is new to you and you're willing to give Jesus a chance or whether you've, you've been into this Christianity thing for ages but you're not sure if you're born again, let me, let me lead you in a prayer. Shall we pray together? Simple prayer inviting Jesus into your word. I'm going to pray as if I would pray as a new believer, a little bit like Lee Strobel. Simply pray this quietly in your own mind. Lord Jesus, I do believe you are the divine son of God. That you lived an amazing life as an example, but you also died a death on the cross that people remember at Easter. You died for the shortcomings, the sin of humanity, including my failings. Forgive me. I believe you rose from the dead that you're alive today. And I invite you, would you come into my life? Be my guide, be my leader, direct my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Just keep your heads bowed for a moment. If you prayed that prayer today and you think, actually, you're not really sure you've ever really prayed a prayer quite like that before, if that's a fresh move for you, why don't you just raise your hand for a moment? Let's keep our heads bowed, please. Just raise your hand if that's a new thing for you. Yeah, I see that hand. See that hand. Anyone else? Two or three hands there. Anyone else? Let me just pray, Father, for those people that have raised their hands today. Lord, that this, uh, this concept of you being in their hearts, being born again, being persuaded you really are the Jesus of eternity, the Jesus of history, the Jesus of the Bible, that you are real, 
I want to pray that you would reveal yourself and make yourself real to those people in a very personal, very powerful way. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's be upstanding as we finish with